Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. From the letter of Paul to the Philippians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. This was the message of Paul to the church at Philippi nearly two millennia ago, and we are still waiting. A cynic's take on this and similar passages in the New Testament is that Paul's hopes for an imminent return of Jesus Christ were misplaced, that he hoped in an event that simply wasn't going to happen. This remains one of the puzzling things about Christian believing that we persist in expecting the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to judge, that we continue to wait at all. We say it every Sunday, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. If we are honest about this, we must say that this one sentence, the only sentence in the Nicene Creed which looks forward in time, is not only puzzling, but baffling, maybe even disappointing. It's like that sermon where the preacher says, lastly, and in closing, and 20 minutes later, is still not done. What I want to make clear this morning is this, that even as the Christian awaits the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh to judge the living and the dead, the Christian also enjoys the very presence of Jesus. Consider how it is that Paul in this passage from Philippians says, not simply the Lord is at hand, but that the peace of God can guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In effect saying that these Christians are already in the near presence of Jesus. Later on he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul writes of the presence of God in Christ as something which has already been realized. Realized as the gospel has gone out, as the apostolic word of teaching and tradition, all of that has been heard and seen. Christian practice is nothing more than and nothing less than the very presence of the living God. And we often forget that. We think, Oh, well, surely it must be about something more than that. It must be more than about the presence of Jesus. It must be more than about God. But at the very heart of Christian theology and teaching is a paradox. That the kingdom of Jesus is coming. That his reign is not yet. But that it has already come. It has been realized. Furthermore, as opposed to thinking in terms of waiting for the end, this understanding says that we are already in the end. For Paul to say that the Lord is at hand refers to two realities at the same time, both the reality of his coming again and the reality of his presence in the church already. The Lord is at hand which is to say that if you're looking for Jesus, 
to come, brothers and sisters. He is coming, but he is also right here. Indwelling his church, giving himself to us in the sacraments. You and I can say with Paul in Ephesians as well that God has raised us up with Jesus and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Listen to that again. He has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the cause of Christian rejoicing. It is also at the very heart of the good news. Not wealth, not ease, not peace, not political victory, not power, but Jesus who has come into this world and Jesus who will come again in power. Jesus who has given himself to this broken and sinful world Jesus who has broken the bonds of death. Jesus who is to judge. This past week, Father Canary posted a wonderful, brilliant quote from the Catholic author Eve Tushnet on social media. And if you're not a follower of Eve Tushnet, you know, become so. <laughs> Forthwith. <laughs> she says this. I told Father Canary I'd steal this, and I'm going to. She says, the eschaton is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. I love that. Where is the end? It's all around us. The full context of this is in her review of five dystopian novels from the last century, and it's a delight. She writes, people are killed every day, their children are taken from them, their city is bombed or burned to ash. These literary characters saw their world ending. But did the world end? Is it gone? The bottom line is that it is not possible for the reign of Christ to come and this world, or that, not come to an end. Consider how quickly our understandings come to an end as soon as faith enables us to receive and truly take on a new understanding. Think about the kind of faith you had as a child there was something good about it, but there was also something childish about it. The old understanding dies, and who is there in its place but Jesus? And maybe you've gone through a long and painful period of repentance and change of life. Maybe the kids have all left the house. Maybe the kids have invaded your house. And how can you look at that and say that something didn't die? Of course it did. And who is there in the midst of it but Jesus? Friends, I cannot begin to tell you how painful the last few years have been for me, how much suffering has been endured, how much rejection, how much painful realization I've had about myself. And what was this but my world ending? But thanks be to God, the world has not ended. Thanks be to God that in place of that dying life, a new one has come to reign. This is, of course, true because the creedal proclamation of the Lord's death and resurrection is true. 
Listen to the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever, loves, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The Lord, in speaking of his coming death and resurrection, speaks directly to the one who loves his life and loses it versus the one who hates his life in this world and keeps it for eternal life. In the Lord's death and resurrection, we find the principle behind all existence that true life is found in dying and that the fruitful life is the very life of Jesus and the very people who have been joined to him in his death. The problem is continual. If you doubt the coming of Jesus, you will fight tooth and nail to find a way to love life in this world. I mean, we will come up with any manner of excuses to just love what this life has for us. I mean, I, I was once sitting down with a group of priests for a really good dinner. It was an unbelievable meal. And this one said, if heaven doesn't have lamb like this, I don't want to go. <laughs> and I got immediately what he was saying because it was good. But on the other hand, if you hope only in the coming of Jesus and you consider this life to be worth nothing, you will become lethargic and unfruitful. The Christian must understand that he or she has been crucified with Christ, raised with him to eternal life, seated with him in the heavenly places. And this is not all joy. It is often painful. It is often a misery. It is often a disaster. It very often feels like the end, but because it is all bound up in the mysteries of Christ, bound up in the mysteries of the cross, it is never simply the end. It is beginning towards perfection. Teresa of Avila once wrote that those who risk all for God will find that they have both lost all and gained all. In her way of perfection, she writes how at the very beginning of the Christian life, after setting aside every passion and defeating our darkest sins, just when we think we've arrived, we're only in the second of nine rooms. We are but beginners. And the Christian must become accustomed to darkness, must become accustomed to being unable to see, unable to hear God. This time, she notes, is when many fall away. They begin to despair. They say, why isn't this life like it used to be when everything was new? And that's entirely understandable, but this is the only way. The Christian must not become captive to the idea that it is all easy, that all is consolation. True obedience is forged in this time, but Teresa is, un is abundantly clear that this darkness, this inability to see, is not because God is absent or even hidden. He is very much present. It is because our minds cannot comprehend how very much at hand He truly is. It is our imaginations that are dull. It is our desires that are fickle. We hide ourselves 
And this hiding is, we think, the way to live. I'm reminded of a friend who, uh, uh, Tish Warren, who was uh, talking about uh, a professor that she had when, uh, when she was studying, and, um, and this professor had a student uh, who was reading the Confessions, Augustine's Confessions, and he came to this professor's office and said, but professor, this is so boring. And this very wise professor said, it's not boring, you're boring. <laughs> and I think about Augustine's confessions because he, he writes that he thought that the Lord had hidden himself from him when in fact it was Augustine that was hiding himself from God. The truth is we must be laid bare before the Lord. I loved what Hans Borsma said about this back in October. He spoke of compunction as the sting of remorse, to be pricked, to be punctured by divine grace so as to be filled with sorrow. Does this sorrow ultimately give way to rejoicing? Of course it does. But it has to be sorrow. It does in precisely the way that the cross gives way to the resurrection. Does the resurrection take away the pain of the cross? Not at all. And in the same way, the church's life, which is so often, to borrow Tolkien's phrase, the long defeat, will on the day of the Lord's coming be drenched in victory, vindication, and joy that is hard-earned. Icons of John the Baptist, such as what you see before you this morning on the wall, are often strange testimonies to this truth. John is depicted holding his own head in his left arm, but he still has his head on his shoulders. Which is amazing, actually. He's got two heads. What the heck? He's holding up his right hand in priestly blessing. He's shown with wings like an angel, not to show that he is an angel, but to show that he is a heavenly, glorious messenger sent by God to proclaim a heavenly salvation. But if you look closely at his face, you'll see that he's sorrowful. And if you can just notice it, you'll see a little axe right at the root of a tree. But it's not the only tree. There are two of them. Do you see that? Two trees. Why two trees? It's an allegorical take on John's words. Two trees in the Garden of Eden. That the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has not borne good fruit. It has disappointed. It has left the people of God sorrowful. And in the coming of the Lord Jesus, its days are numbered. It will be consumed with fire. And the juxtaposition of the axe and John holding his head is intentional. It is meant to show that even as this tree of death is being cut down, he has been cut down. Cut down by martyrdom. Cut down by an evil king. 
It's to say that good fruit is born by the people of God, not in their joy all the time, but in the difficulties. By bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Is it easy? No. Is it always a joy? No. John's life ends and new life begins. The thing that must be said this morning is this, that there is no good way to do an end run around this pain, this compunction, this repentance, these thousand little deaths which you and I must die and die daily. There is no way around these tears and there is no way around these humiliations. I remember a one-time parishioner who who came back to Christ Church after having gone to a, another church in town that will remain nameless on Easter Sunday. And he said the sermon was all about how because of the resurrection, you should never feel down. And if there's something down about you, if you're depressed, if you're down and out, then you might ask why that is. And he said, I'm so glad to be back, Father. <laughs> I said, well, why? Because he's like, you don't do that. You don't do that. These pains are necessary. These struggles are appropriate. If they were necessary for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, they are necessary for us. The good news, however, is that these deaths, these defeats, these ends of our worlds, these crosses, these martyrdoms are not without their glory. None of these are final and none of these are ends. The end has begun. The eschaton has arrived. The end is Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.